Broadcasting live high atop the Sunset Strip, deep in the heart of Tinseltown, via the World Wide Web at www.edamrocksradio.com. It's the Edam Rocks Radio Show. Now, your host, Son Edom. And welcome to another episode of what I like to refer to as From Nonsense to Godsense. As we take a look at some of the issues facing us today, and we look through the lens of a biblical perspective, and the topic on this show is life, marriage, and religious liberty, what belongs to God, and what belongs to Caesar, a new book that's out. And joining us is Bruce Ashford. He is provost and Professor of Theology and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Bruce, uh, thanks for joining us here. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So the Manhattan Declaration, which was written 10 years ago, says basically that we will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but will not give to Caesar what is God's. It's a declaration that was signed by millions of Christians, and it pertains to such topics as life, marriage, and religious liberties. So first off, maybe you can start off by letting us know um, about the verse or the scripture that came for the, uh, the, the basis for the Manhattan Declaration. And then two, in the last 10 years since this first was released and signed by all these Christians, how much has the cultural landscape changed? Yeah, great question. So, you know, there's a passage of scripture that Matthew uh, tells us about it, Mark does too, when they came to Jesus and tried to trick him, which usually doesn't go well, uh, he doesn't get tricked, but they came and they said, listen, here's this coin, it's got Caesar on it, should we give it to Caesar or should we give it to God? And Jesus said, eh, give to Caesar what's his, give to God what is God's. And some people think that this passage is basically saying, hey, listen, there's a part of your life, maybe a half of it, you give it to the government, and the government's in charge of it. Then there's another part of your life, another half of it, and you give it to God. <laughs> that is not at all what Jesus meant when he said that. What Jesus was saying was something like this. Ah, listen, you uh, live in this time b- between uh, b- before I return and set the world to rights. You live in a fallen world, and it's ruled by fallen rulers. Give them your allegiance. You know, be, be a good citizen. But don't, and so give them that. But don't you ever give them what is due to God alone, which is your ultimate allegiance. Only God gets that. And what that means is, no matter what nation we live in, no matter what political arrangement or political leader, um, if those political leaders or that political arrangement goes against God's law, then our allegiance is to God and his law at that point, rather than to a leader or a political arrangement. And um, we're, we're going to, in the past 10 years since the Manhattan De- Declaration, there have been a number of things that have happened. Let me mention two or three. The first is, there was a, I want to start with this, there was a publication of a document called Peaceful Coexistence, published by the United States um, Commission on Civil Rights. And in it, uh, they ele- basically the, the majority of the Civil Rights Commission elevated non-discrimination rights above religious freedom. Now, religious freedom is in, enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, uh, that we're given free exercise of religion. And this is viewed as a first freedom. If a nation doesn't have religious liberty, eventually it won't have any liberty. Um, but what they did in this document in the Commission on, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is they said, listen, non-discrimination is more important than religious liberty. Now, non-discrimination is a very vague and ambiguous phrase um, and can be stretched to mean any number of things. Basically, that you can't uh, disagree with anybody's choices. You can't verbalize your disagreement. You can't refrain from doing anything that anyone wants you to do to recognize their moral, immoral lifestyle or their, their choices, whether they're good or bad and they elevated non-discrimination above religious liberty. In a very telling statement, uh, their chair, his name is Martin Castro, 
uh, said, this is not an exact quote from memory, but something to this extent. He said, listen, religious liberty is a catchphrase that's a mask for what's really tr- truly going on with evangelical Christians, and that's hatred, bigotry, prejudice, and so forth. And so I think this is very telling that there are a number of people, many on the left and some on the right, who think that religion is antiquated, that Christianity is out of date, it's old, and uh, that it needs to be replaced. And so they're coming up with uh, sort of their sort of revisioning reality and revisioning morality. And when Christians go against the new morality, we're going to be accused of discrimination. And depending on how the courts rule, the religious liberty uh, clauses may or may not protect us. Another one, just very quickly, is Obergefell, the 2015 case that uh, um, changed uh, marriage as a category and introduced a category confusion, which is homosexual marriage. I think as Christians, we know that the Bible teaches that marriage is between men and women, and so there can be a union of sorts between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, uh, a romance of some sort or a friendship, even if it goes against God's design and against his uh, wishes and his command. Um, There is a union of some sort or a friendship of some sort, but it's not a marriage. So there's a couple of examples. Yeah, I was going to say, when you take a look over the last few years, you know, you see people such as bakers and florists who have had, had their lives turned upside down because of their religious convictions. You know, they've been sued because they didn't maybe want to bake a special cake or provide special services for things such as an LGBT wedding, like you mentioned. You know, you've got Jack Phillips in Colorado, uh, who, th- who I think is starting to kind of win his, his case. Uh, Sweet Cakes by Melissa in Oregon, you know, they're struggling through the court system. I think the Supreme Court just, you know, ruled something in that case. Barnell Stutzman in Washington, still in the fight. Uh, Chick-fil-A, you know, they're being kicked out of airports for, you know, their their beliefs. So uh, I guess the question is, what does it say about our culture today that people are actively taking action against these businesses who have a faith-based belief system and are attacking them and wanting to literally destroy these people and their businesses? Yeah, you know, so um, I think one of the things we see is a change in the way people view truth in general. So it's not just that they reject the Bible as a revelation of truth. It's that people reject the concept of an objective transcendent truth. When I say transcendent, for those of you out there in radio land, I just mean a a framework of morals that is above humanity and outside of us, and we're supposed to aim our lives toward it. So most people don't believe that such a thing exists. They think that truth is subjective, meaning that truth is inside of us. And that if we're true to our own desires and true to what we think we ought to do, then we're, we're following truth. So in a situation like that, when we disagree with another person, that person experiences the disagreement as hatred. Because if truth is inside of you and I'm disagreeing with what's inside of you, I must hate you as a person. And that's what you see in these cases. And sometimes intentionally, uh, but hopefully often unintentionally, uh, media outlets will say, so-and-so baker refuse to bake a cake for these people because they're gay. Well, I'm not aware of any of those instances in which a cake was refused to being baked. Someone refused to bake a cake for a person because they're gay. It was they refused to bake a cake for a wedding ceremony because doing so would have said that I believe that marriage can be between a man and a man or a woman or a woman. There's a difference there. And, you know, several of those bakers mentioned that they've, you know, baked cupcakes or cakes or desserts for, for uh, gay folks for decades now, and uh, and that the only time they've declined is, is when they were affirming 
when they would have had to bake something that affirmed, you know, the ceremony itself. Um, but I do think we're in a tribalized, polarized era. Just take a look at your Facebook wall or, um, you know, the news or opinion outlets, and you'll see, and I blame some of this on the, a lot of it, actually, on the media and on spineless political leaders on both sides of the aisle sometimes, that um, what makes money for media outlets is clicks. And what keeps people coming back is one of three things, sex, fear, and anger. Those are the three things that can bring people back to a website. And so you're going to notice the national media outlets have increasingly pornographic links, but they also have links that make our population angry and afraid of people on the other side of the political aisle. And they're burning the country down to make money. And so it's a, it's a, it, it trickles down, right? Um, it trickles down to uh, people on Main Street. And so we've got to find a way past this. Bruce Ashford is my guest. The topic is life, marriage, and religious liberty, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar, a new book that's out. And are we on the brink of a societal civil war? Has this already begun? Is it something that we can avoid? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think we're at a point um, where there's so much more ideological diversity and cultural diversity in the United States than there was two or 300 years ago that both of the major political parties are having the most difficult time finding unity within their own party, much less being able to reach a hand across the aisle and work with people on the other side of the aisle. So there's a very real worldview um, divergence right now, and that's, that's real. Um, are we on the verge of civil, kind of a civil war? It feels like it sometimes. Uh, sometimes I think we wonder, is there, are we going to be able to repair the fabric of our society? Are we going to be able to regain even a kind of a lowest common denominator of unity? And I, I don't know. I certainly hope so. I think we can. Um, for readers who are old enough to remember, I'm not old enough to remember, but I've read history books. The 1960s were worse, I think. You know, we had, you know, had firebombings and uh, you had the weathermen, underground groups, and uh, m- militias forming against each other, and we're not quite at that point yet. And so if we're able to recover from the 60s, I hope that we can recover in some way or another right now. And I think here's what's important. It's for Christians to behave as Christians in the public square. And that means, I think, um, recovering this combination of truth and grace that Christ exhibited. By truth, I mean that the, the truth content of our statement. Our policy stands are based upon biblical reason from, uh, you know, a Christian worldview. But by grace, I mean that our disposition should be the disposition of a person who has been humbled by God, has been stopped dead in our tracks by our sin, saved by Christ. And so, therefore, the way we treat other people is is uh, even if we're arguing against their point of view, we refuse to lie about them, tell half-truths about them, demonize them, degrade them. That's what our political leaders do, all the way up to the highest office of the land right now. And we as Christians can't do it. We can't take our Christianity and tie it behind our back when we enter the public square. We can make strong arguments and we can be tough, but we can't do it in a way where we break God's moral law and misrepresent Christ. I want to ask you more about truth here in a moment, but first uh, a question for people that might be uh, listening. We're talking with Bruce Ashford. He's the provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our topic is life, marriage, and religious liberty. We're talking about giving to God what's God or letting God keep what is his and then giving to our government or our society what belongs to them without 
con- uh, confusing the two. And I guess we're talking a little bit about the religious liberty aspect right now in some of these cases and some of these issues that have come up. And so people might be listening. So when it comes to this religious liberty and people fighting so hard to maintain this freedom that we're able to have so that we can believe a certain way, so that we can worship a certain way, we can conduct business a certain way. Why does religious freedom matter to us all? Yeah, so religious freedom, uh, Baptists especially, but in, in recent years, Catholics and a number of other denominations have recognized religious liberty is the first freedom. It's the most substantial freedom, because what, it, what religious liberty says is that a person should, have, should be granted the right by the government to um, have deep convictions and to align their lives with those convictions freely and openly in public without fear of reprisal. And so that means to the greatest extent possible, unless your religion is causing you to kill people or, or physically hurt them or something like that, we want to let you exercise um, your religion. And so once that goes, if that freedom caves, everything else is going to go after it. Freedom of speech is a much weaker concept. Freedom of the press is much weaker. They're derivative. Um, and so if religion can be defeated, if citizens can be um, cowed, into sort of publicly hiding their convictions and not aligning their lives with it, none of the other freedoms will stand. And there's a, I mean, there's a, well, if I, I'll tell you what, those of you out in radio land, I'm going to give you a two minute picture into something that happened in the world of philosophy a couple hundred years ago and how we're paying for it now. Right? So there was a French philosopher named Auguste Comte. And Auguste Comte tried to start his own religion. He called it a religion of humanity or humanitarian religion. It was a religion without a God. What he said is, listen, let's all just love each other and have compassion on each other, but let's, let's just recognize there is no such thing as a God, and let's work against uh, these institutions that cause evil and war. And he singled out two institutions, um, religious institutions and um, the nation state. And I think what we're seeing right now on the left and sometimes on the right in elite circles is this desire to live in a borderless and religionless world. And it's Auguste Comte's world, uh, um, where we have humanitarian intentions, we intend to do nice things for people, but we want to do it without religion and without borders. And I just, uh, it's just, it's not going to turn out well. God's best intentions for humanity is for us to be shaped by religion, and most especially by religion of Christianity, God revealing himself in Christ. Um, and then also God creates us to live in specific locations. We're not citizens of a globe, so much as we are citizens of towns and cities and of states and of a particular nation. And we're supposed to live within the frameworks of that, or within the framework of that, uh, to work out our Christianity. You mentioned truth uh, moments ago, and you're talking about church, talking about religion, so then what does it say about the church when you have pastors and denominations promoting and supporting things such as non-biblical marriage? Yeah, you know, beginning with a guy named Friedrich Schleimacher, a theologian, uh, a couple hundred years ago in Germany, there's been a strong impulse to sort of reshape Christianity, to take uh, traditional doctrines of Christianity and sort of throw them in the dustbin of history. And there's a number of uh, political, uh, excuse me, religious leaders and political leaders, a number of denominations and churches who have done exactly that. But when you do that, you end up, first of all, it goes against 
God's intentions. It goes against his word to do that. And that, so in principle, it's wrong, but it, uh, in the end, it's just, it's ridiculous because then churches end up looking just like their cultural context. So uh, it's just kind of silly. And why would you even want to be a part of a religion that changed itself every time the you know, Hollywood celebrity culture in America changed itself? You know, so the next uh, sort of idiocy or immorality that is in vogue in the U.S. 20 years from now, you can just count on those churches and denominations and swan step uniformity with their cultural context, just sort of change everything they believe on the spot. It makes a mockery of, uh, of the whole thing. Bruce Ashford is with us. The topic is life, marriage, and religious liberty. And when it comes to the topic of marriage, it's another explosive uh, topic in our society today. I think most people would agree that it's a religious entity. Uh, Christians say it's founded in biblical Christian doctrine, that God created marriage. But again, society has taken it over. Now it's just a big free-for-all, people wanting to marry anybody and anything, practically. Um, Why should people be concerned with having a traditional biblical view of marriage? And what's the significance of this viewpoint on marriage in today's cultural landscape? Yeah, so let me let me give uh, I'm break my uh, answer into into two parts. The first part is uh, the doctrine of creation that the Bible teaches that God created the world and that He instituted that the very first institution in the world was marriage. That God created man and woman and created them for one another. That's marriage, and uh, that that God said that this union between a man and woman somehow imaged Him was an image of of who God is. So God built marriage between a man and a woman into the creational order. It's the first institution to appear in the Bible and in history. It is uh, the most basic unit of any society and always has been historically. Uh, Its health, the health of of, of marriages within a society, are the surest indicator for how healthy the society itself is going to be. And so if you wanted to harm a society, the very best way to do it would be to attack the family and the church, these two foundational units of society. So that's the the doctrine of creation. This is God made marriage to be between a man and a woman before sin ever happened, before Christ ever had to come. This was woven into the nature of the universe. Um, The second thing we had mentioned is in the New Testament, we're told that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. And um, and so anytime something is intended to point people um, to God in Christ, we don't want to distort that institution by making it into our own image, by doing with it whatever we please. Um, that said, here, here here's the deal. Um, Christians uh, are people who are same-sex attracted, and some of whom, or many of whom, act on that same-sex attraction to, you know, to live uh, as homosexuals, and some of them in a marriage. These are people who created an image and likeness of God. They deserve our respect as human beings, created an image and likeness of God. They deserve our love. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. And we've got to find ways of doing that, of respecting them and loving them, uh, while at the same time loving them enough to tell them the truth about what the Bible says, about God's best intention for them um, to flourish as human beings. And God's best intentions, as the Bible makes clear, uh, does not involve um, homosexual marriage. So with half the marriages ending up in a split in churches and religious leaders promoting and supporting non-biblical marriage, what can Christians do to stand up for biblical marriage, and why should this matter? Yeah, well, one of the things we can do is we can 
try to counteract the dominant cultural teaching of the West in general and of America in particular. And that dominant teaching is the purpose of existence is to be utterly unencumbered, to have complete freedom over your own life, to do anything you want to do, and to make yourself into any type of person you want to be. You can create and recreate and recreate yourself. And uh, this is this is what's in the air. This is what, and it undermines marriage. I mean, it goes utterly and completely against marriage because in marriage you have a covenant that binds you to another person so that you are no longer a sort of isolated individual out there choosing and doing whatever you want to do. And, you know, I think Christians in the United States have been more shaped by American culture than we have by biblical teaching and by the Christian community. And that's why it's an uphill battle. And so what we have to do is we have to determine together as believers that as married believers that we owe ourselves to our spouse, and then as Christians that we owe ourselves to one another as uh, in the Christian community. And, uh, and so if we can, as Christians, actually live that out and have strong marriages and strong Christian communities, it enhances our witness uh, to the world. And to the extent that we can't do that, to the extent that we cannot, to that same extent we undermine our own witness. Bruce Ashford is my guest. He's provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're discussing life, marriage, and religious liberty, a new book that's out. It's uh, What Belongs to God and What Belongs to Caesar is the title. Another of the aspects, we've been touching on religious liberty, we've been touching on marriage. The other aspect is uh, life. It's another dividing point in our cultural landscape, the right to life, whether it's about abortion, assisted suicide, even euthanasia. It seems like our culture has shifted to focus on ending life rather than promoting and, and sustaining life. You know, recent abortion laws have gone so far as to make it legal for post-birth abortion. Uh, assisted suicide becoming lawful in states across the country. I think Maine's the, the latest one to have it become legal. And so it makes it scary even for people, you know, who's giving the consent for this person to die? Is it the, the victim, the person that's sick or the person that's going to die? Or is it the assistant? And of course, euthanasia, a lot of people just call it, you know, selection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who lives, who dies. So again, when we talk about this right to life versus, you know, uh, promoting death, ending life, how do we get to this point in society where this promotion of death is taking precedent over life? Yeah, you know, once again, it comes back to individualism. I should be free to do whatever I want to. And when I become encumbered by an elderly person, then in many Western countries, you can actually eventually put them to death. When I become encumbered by a baby in the womb, I can use lethal violence against it. So just to take two or three minutes here on um, the abortion issue, I think Roe v. Wade, in the words of Marianne Glendon, professor at Harvard Law, uh, Roe v. Wade was something like an environmental disaster in the moral ecology of our country. So it, it not only harmed babies, and it did harm babies, harms them. I mean, we got the medical technology. They're in excruciating pain during an abortion. And there's a legal irony that an unborn baby in a womb in a hospital in America has far less legal protection than a species of bird in the forest, a forest outside of the hospital. So it harms the baby, it harms the woman, because it te- um, abortion, legalized abortion teaches men that they don't have to be sexually responsible, that they don't have to take care of a baby, they can just be in it for you know what. And so it harms the woman. Um, it harms the family, because it teaches a family if you encounter a problem big enough, you can use lethal violence to solve it. It harms law-governed democracy, 
as one of the greatest ironies in American history, just after the civil rights movement, when America had kind of said, you know what, you can't take an entire class of people, black folks, and tell them that they don't get justice and equality. Just after that happened, a few black-gowned Ivy League lawyers in Roe v. Wade said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, there is an entire group of humans, unborn ones, who don't deserve justice and equality. Um, and so, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade was, was like an environmental disaster on the moral ecology of our nation. It, it, it numbed our collective consciences, um, eroded our moral foundations, taught us to go against our most basic moral intuition, which is to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us. And we have got to find a way as Christian community. And, and this is an area where we've actually made progress over the last 30 to 40 years. The, 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 uh, it, it, the culture is moving in our direction very slowly, but it's moving in our direction. We've got to find a way to make sure that every unborn being, every baby, is protected in law and welcomed in life. And if it can't be welcomed in life by the, by the, the biological parents, then maybe then we can find a way for it to be welcomed in life by adoptive parents. You know, when we talk about these issues, religious liberty, marriage, life, you see extremes on both sides of the issue. Um, there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of common ground. Um, seems like these topics just, you know, evoke such strong emotions that people can't even sit down and talk about these matters. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, Facebook a little bit, a little bit ago. And, you know, there's been many people that I know have split up on Facebook because of issues and things that have been posted and stuff like that. So it's really kind of becoming a, a you know, it has become a serious matter in some, you know, people's lives. But um, as we can begin to move forward, kind of, kind of get beyond these things, you know, you're in uh, academics and theology at the uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm in academics out here where I'm at. What can be done to start a civil dialogue about these issues so that we can begin not only to heal a nation, but maybe move towards creating solutions that are best for all of the lives involved? That's a huge question you just asked, and uh, I'll give it my best shot in a short amount of time. I think one of the things we're going to have to do is to start at the local level, not the national. National stuff is beyond our control. I mean, I, I was a regular contributor for Fox News and for Heritage Foundation for a while, and even at a powerful outlets like that, I have very little, very little ability to influence. But at the local level, we all have the ability to influence. So that means in our Facebook exchanges, in our coffee shop conversations, we've got to find a way of, of mending relations, reaching out across the aisle. And even when we disagree, doing so with respect and even love for the other human being, we need to realize that the, the, the circumambient imbecility, just the idiocy we see on the, the news and opinion networks, it's just that. It's the news networks finding the worst examples they can from either side of the aisle and putting those on full display. But the people we talk to on the local level are, are probably not going to behave like those people we see on TV. And so we want to start at the local level. Um, we have to remind ourselves that in a, in, when we're talking about these contentious issues, to be very, very careful with how we communicate. God knows, do not take the cue from the president or the congressman, or from most of them. And don't take a cue from the political and opinion hosts. That's awful. Um, let's take our cues from Christ, which means that we can argue with strength, we can take a position of the moral high ground, and we can do so while not behaving like a juvenile delinquent, which is how most of the commentators on TV behave and many of our politicians behave. 
which is this combination of truth and grace. Truth without grace makes us political bullies and jerks. Grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. Yeah, I like that uh, truth and grace combination. That really kind of puts it right front and center for people to really grab on two words that you can remember that hopefully can influence you as you move forward. Uh, Bruce Ashford, the guest, we started the conversation. Uh, well, the topic is life, marriage, and religious liberty, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar. And Bruce, we, tar- we started the conversation with this idea of we're going to give to God what belongs to him. We're going to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But it seems like more and more things are becoming in the Caesar column than the God column these days. How can we restore balance either with just ourselves or with the nation? How can we restore this balance and give back to God what rightfully belongs to him and respectfully give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? And what steps can we take? Where should we start? Yeah, these are the big questions. And I really appreciate you having me on, on the show to, uh, to uh, try to answer them. And just, my, I guess, my kind of summarizing thoughts on this would be, listen, um, the, the Bible is made up of 66 books, numerous authors, multiple genres, but it comes together to form one story one true story of the whole world. That's what the Bible gives us, is the true story of the whole world. And what we need to do is to soak ourselves in that narrative and to know it inside and out, uh, and then to live it out, to place our lives within that narrative and, and, and try to live in conformity with it, uh, both in private and in public. And to do so in public, even when it's difficult, even when the people who come against us lie about us, tell partial truths, mock us, degrade us, for us to not respond in kind. It's a very difficult discipline. Um, do we have a minute for me to delve into that? Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I did a, an experiment on my Facebook author page over the past few years. Um, whenever I would publish an article, I did opinion columns for Fox News pretty regularly, and then I did some for Heritage Foundation, a few other organizations, and I would link to them on my author page, and I would get anywhere from a couple dozen to a couple hundred comments out of the comments usually about 80 to 90% were mockery and insults and every once in a while a threat. And what I decided to do, because there were people, you know, watching my author pages, I decided to go in there and interact with some of these folks who were mocking and insulting. And what I would do is I would reply to one of their comments and I would start with something like, listen, thank you for commenting. I know that we share a similar concern about the direction of our country and about, you know, whatever the topic was. Uh, but, you know, I think a solution is different. Here's why, here's why I differ from you on this. And then after I'd said that, I would say, listen, thanks again for commenting. I hope you have a good day. Um, and about 50% of the time, a person who had been just a mocker and an insulter actually came back with a humane response, and we had a little bit of a positive conversation. And while I don't recommend Facebook as a, <laughs> or any social media outlets as a primary place to have conversation, it just it just goes to show that, that if you'll reach out and do the right thing, say the right thing in the right way, sometimes you're going to get a good response. And surprisingly, you might often get a good response. You may not and probably won't persuade the person on the spot, but you build a friend uh, with whom you can continue to converse in the future. So let's take the Bible's narrative. Let's know it. Soak ourselves in it. And then let's uh, live it out faithfully during the day. Bruce Ashford, my guest, provost and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our topic today was life, marriage, and religious liberty, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar. A new book out. 
You can probably find it at all the usual book stops along the way. Hey, Bruce, thanks so much for uh, joining us and uh, talking about these tough issues that are facing people today in this world. And uh, best of luck with the book and everything you got going on. And maybe we can do this again down the road sometime. Great. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Bruce Ashford, our guest. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate your time with us. And until next time, God bless.